0: If you're taking notes this morning, I titled our time in God's Word, The Glory of Israel. The Glory of Israel. Speaking of Christ Himself, uh, He is, as we'll see in the text in just a few minutes, He is the glory of Israel. Simeon would understand this. He would see this for himself. Joseph and Mary, of course, already had seen this. And anyone that's heart was soft and tender would come to see this. You and I can see this as our hearts are soft and listening to the Word of God, listening to what the Holy Spirit is telling the church. And I've divided our text into three sections, as is my norm this morning. The first being consecration, uh, the second being consolation, and the third being continuation. So consecration, consolation, and continuation. Where we left off... Jesus was being worshipped and adored by shepherds, and uh, these shepherds, some of the lowest as far as income and status in society, and why shepherds, as we talked about, uh, throughout the Bible, we see God's special heart for shepherds, knowing that His Son would be called the Good Shepherd, the Faithful Shepherd. And we know that Abraham was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd and David was a shepherd and of course all of these shepherds these godly men were mere foreshadowings and types of the final great shepherd who with his staff aren't you glad his staff he keeps us in place as the hymn says we're prone to wander but he keeps us in place, and he binds our wounds. For those of you that had wounds this year, and he heals and he cleans, and all of the things. And so the Lord has a special place in His heart for shepherds, and the shepherds is where we left off. They were worshiping the Lord, and Joseph and Mary, just marveling and seeing Mary herself treasuring all these things which the Lord had done. That. Why me? Why would I be given the Son of God? Why would I, just a a maidservant of the Lord, a servant of the Lord, be given Son of the Most High? And she worshipped, her husband Joseph worshipping, the shepherds worshipping. And then, eight days were completed, and it's time for the circumcision of Jesus. And if we're looking at this consecration, this word, what does it mean to consecrate? Well, it's the Hebrew word kodash. It means to sanctify, to prepare, to dedicate, to be hallowed, to be holy, to be separate, to consecrate something. Jesus himself was already consecrated by the Father. Amen. Would you agree? He was consecrated by the Holy Spirit even before his birth. We see similarly, even John, his relative, was filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, consecrated by God. But even the consecration of God, God still requires us to, by choice, also participate in that consecration. To give and to say, I consecrate. You've done that this morning. You have consecrated time to be here. That makes sense? You considered it hallowed. You could be watching a movie right now. You could be out to breakfast. You could be reading the paper. You could still be in bed. You could still be doing a million other things, but you consecrated this time. You set it apart. You gave it unto the Lord because you believe you believe that God wanted you to do so. I know God wants me to do so. It's not a question of, I I wonder if God, you want me to set apart this time. I know he wants me to set apart this time. To consecrate it. To sanctify it. Uh, Most of us know that whatever we sanctify the Lord, we want to do it with prayer. We don't want to enter into his presence with sin. Or we want to be cleansed. We want to hear from the Lord. Set apart. Joseph and Mary, here they are, eight days later, this first instant of consecration. We actually have three that we'll take a look at, the first one being the circumcision of Jesus, three instances of of consecration. All three are commanded by the law, so you could disobey them, but why? Because then you would be in direct opposition to the Word of God. How many of you want to live in direct opposition to the Word of God? I know what God's Word says, but I'm going to do this. And hopefully it'll work just as well. It won't, will it? It might look that way for a period of time, but we have three instances of consecration, three things that the Lord has commanded that Joseph and Mary consecrate. Isn't it great that a lot of the things, one of the things I love about the Word of God is we don't have to make up our life. We simply follow what God says to do. Isn't that nice? Don't you like it when directions work? How many put together a toy? They don't always seem to work. What I really love is when they make a list of directions for the toy, and the best I can tell, they've skipped two or three steps somewhere in there, assuming that everyone else is an engineer. Could you have added a little detail between one and three? just a little bit. But God, the things that He wants us to consecrate, the things that He wants us to give to Him, the things that He wants us to present, He tells us how to do it, why to do it, and the fact that if we do those things, we'll be blessed. Not that we'll become a multi-millionaire, that's not what He promised, but blessed. Blessed if we consecrate these things that the lord has asked us to do well there's three here that are commanded by the law each of them joseph and mary very obediently and precisely follow exactly as the scripture said now remember when jesus comes into the world there is no new testament everyone understands that right jesus is the living new testament in mary's arms there is no written New Testament that won't come till well after Jesus has gone back into heaven and the apostles and Luke and others will write the New Testament which is a recording of his life and other things that God writes to us the church in the epistles. But there is no New Testament, they only have what? The Tanakh. Genesis through Malachi. 400 years of silence since Malachi jesus comes into the world but they only have i shouldn't say only they have a lot the tanakh the old testament is full of rich meat isn't it it's full of truth it's full of a wealth of things but for israel or the israelites the jewish person they had specific commands that were not given to the gentiles but they've not yet been released of any of them make sense there's no there's been no release They still are under the law. Jesus, as the Scripture tells us, was born under the law. So they still are required to follow each and every one of these things according to the Word of God. So these three instances of consecration, two of them relate to Jesus, and one relates to Mary. And in, in, in context, they all three relate to Mary and Joseph, but two specifically relate to Jesus, and one specifically... To Mary, Let's look at the first one related to Jesus, this uh, circumcision. Now, as we saw with John, that we now call John the Baptized. Uh, John the Baptist, Sam, my, my good messianic uh, pastor friend, he calls him John the Baptizer. But we now know him as John the Baptist. Now, as we saw with John, the son of Elizabeth and Zacharias, Mary and Joseph perform... This circumcision, or the Brit Milah, which is still practiced in Jewish culture and Jewish homes and Jewish communities to this day, on the eighth day, the Brit Milah or circumcision, according to the command. And we know that the command was given first to Abraham, even well before the law. Abraham was given the command in Genesis seventeen twelve. Not only was Abraham given the command of circumcision, but it would never stop in the household of Israel through all generations. All generations. And then Moses was given the same command in Leviticus 12.3. So Abraham was given first, Moses given it second, this eighth day, and it had to be done on the eighth day. And we know that, again, there's medical benefit uh, that we now know today, even doing that as far as blood coagulation and things of that nature. Also, as we saw with John and his parents, the name of God's son was given privately just like it was remember that the name of John was given to John when he was in the holy place and that Elizabeth also knew the name because when John could not speak and the family was all you know up in arms what are you going to name him and she says John she already knew the name so both of them had been given the name privately Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph, they had already been given the name privately by who? The angel Gabriel had told them the name. They didn't come up with the name Jesus. They were given the name Jesus by God sent through the angel Gabriel. But as remains the custom to this day, on the Brit Milah, on the eighth day of circumcision, even to this day... Jewish families that follow or practice Judaism will name the male child on the eighth day. Even if the family already knows what they're going to name him, if you ask the family on the fourth day, you'll find out on the eighth day. Well, I want to know before then. They might tell you, but a lot of times they're going to tell you, come to the Brit Milah and you'll find out the name. They already knew the name, but it would be announced and it says on the eighth day that he was called Jesus or... In the Hebrew, he was called Yeshua, as we talked about, which means God is salvation. Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, or Jesus, every knee should bow. You know, we... we we probably don't appreciate the name Jesus anywhere close to how we should. Do you believe that verse, or those two verses? That God has highly exalted him and given him the name Yeshua, which is above every single name. So the next time you hear that name used as a swear word, it might burn your ears a little bit more than it already does. True? True. I hate when people use Jesus' name? Of all the things they could say, I never hear them say Muhammad's name like that. I never hear them say Confucius' name like that. I never hear them use Buddha's name like that. Why? There's no power in those names. Everyone takes attention when someone curses with the name of Jesus, but with that Someday, if there's not repentance, give an account for abusing the name above every single name. High above. It was a holy name given to him by God. After Jesus is sanctified according to the law of circumcision. Now, remember that Jesus is sinless. He doesn't need sanctification like we do. He is set apart. A good example of him being set apart, he's the only one born of a virgin. That's how set apart he is. If that's not set apart, I don't know what is. No one else has ever been born of a virgin. He's set different, distinctly set apart by God, and yet they still are required to perform this circumcision And after he is set apart according to the law and given this glorious name, we see now the faithful sanctification of Mary, the second of the consecrations that take place here in Luke chapter 2, each of them important. See, according to the law of purification, that Mary might be sanctified herself, she would not be able to enter the temple for the dedication of Jesus until... She had waited 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 12. See this for yourself in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 12, Mary following, Joseph, of course, knowing uh, the law as well, being her husband, both of them following this consecration exactly as the Lord commanded. Leviticus chapter 12, it's only a short eight verses And your Bibles might actually have a heading up at the top, something that might say something like the ritual after childbirth. So when a Jewish woman would have either a male or a female, the firstborn here we see, um, well, the firstborn we'll get to in a second. That's um, back in Exodus 13. But any time a woman would have a child, those of you ladies that have had children, Uh, if you were under the law, you would be following this. If you were going to serve and seek and follow the Lord, you'd follow this. Today, you don't have to follow this. Uh, Christ is the end of the law, as far as the end of the uh, ceremonial law. He's certainly not the end of the Ten Commandments. That he still upholds. But the ceremonial things uh, are no longer something that we're bound by. But in Mary's time, she still was under... These commands. So look at Leviticus chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. There is again the eighth day requirement for circumcision of all male children. Then she shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. That's 33 days starting on the 8th day. The 8th day, th- day is part of the 33. So 7 days, 8th day of circumcision, and the 33 days starts with the 8th day. So the 8th day begins the first of 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, which means she cannot enter the tabernacle at that time. Nor could she enter the temple for forty full days. Seven plus thirty-three. How many? You good at math? Forty, right? So into the purification until the days of her purification are fulfilled. Now, if verse five she bears a female child, just so you know, different rules for if it was a female. If she bears a female, then she shall be unclean two weeks. That's fourteen days, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification. 66 days to do the math that's 80 days twice as long for if you give birth to a girl my wife had three daughters each time 80 days before she could enter the tabernacle or temple tabernacle came first temple comes later 80 full days if it was a boy for those who've had sons 40 days why did god do that well you can ask him face to face when you get to heaven you can hazard guesses, but God does not explain everything, does he? I love that, that God doesn't explain certain things to me. It puts me in my proper place. How about you? He just knows what he's doing. Verse 6, And when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering. And, as Luke records, Luke records, and a young pigeon or turtle doves as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Tabernacle was then, temple would come later. Of course, the temple is just a larger structure of the tabernacle. Then he shall offer to the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law of her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring, verse 8, if she's not able to bring a lamb, then she may also bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Go back to Luke chapter 2. This was required for Mary to be considered consecrated and pure before the Lord to go into the temple. And of course she would have to, at the end of that 40 days, day 41, go in and present either a lamb, or if she and her family were poor and couldn't afford it, they could present two turtledoves, which would cost significantly less. And we can see here from Luke's recording, verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons, this is all that Joseph and Mary could afford. They couldn't afford a lamb. Now, remember, this takes place well before the wise men arrive on the scene with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because some of you might be thinking, why don't they just sell a little bit of gold? They could buy a lamb. Gold can buy a lot of lambs. Frankincense, myrrh are very expensive, but that doesn't come until Jesus is somewhere between the age of 1 and 2. When we get to next week, when we look at Jesus from toddler to 12 years of age, we'll understand a little bit more of the timeline and what took place here, but they don't have the money. Remember, there was no room for them in an inn. They, By God's provident and, and provision, they got a borrowed stable and a manger. Joseph and Mary were very much um, in need. They didn't have much in the way of finances. Notice... What I think is interesting about this, God sends his son down from heaven. The Bible says of of God, God says of himself, all the silver is mine and all the gold is mine. How many believe that? That Bill Gates actually doesn't own the money that he currently holds. God says it all belongs to him. Donald Trump. The sheiks of Saudi Arabia. God says, all the cattle on a thousand hills, all the gold, all the silver, all the jewels under the ground that no one's even found yet, all the oil and the shale and everything else, all the big oil guys, God says, every single penny of it belongs to me. That all of you are living on borrowed time, and so am I. Amen? You don't even own your next breath. So God says, it all belongs to me, but He sends His Son into the world to a poor carpenter and his probably even more poor wife. And he knows what the law, God knows the law, the the purpose or priority is the lamb, but if you can't afford the lamb, then you can substitute two turtle doves, and guess what? They have to substitute two turtle doves. God sends his son knowing that they will not be able to afford even a lamb to fulfill the 41st day of purification when they go in to offer the sacrifice on behalf of Mary, that her cleansing, her ritual cleansing, will be completed. But I think what's noteworthy for me, and hopefully for you, is it reminds me how little value God puts on wealth and possessions. Isn't that astounding? God has no value, none whatsoever. He did not give Jesus to parents that could buy him the most incredible haul of Christmas gifts. He didn't get the new mini motorcycle. He didn't get the iPad. He didn't get a vacation to the most incredible places. He didn't get a brand new snowboard. He didn't get any of that kind of stuff as a kid because mom and dad didn't have that kind of money. They barely had enough. And God knew they wouldn't have barely enough for it, but two turtledoves. Why is that not in? Well, I believe it's very significant. Jesus was placed in a home that had next to nothing financially. And American parents are killing themselves to keep up with the Joneses, to make sure that my kid gets the same gift. If, that, if we have to go $1,000 into credit card debt, we will do it, by golly. Because we will not be outsold, outbid, outdone. And Jesus' parents were like, we just need to go to the temple. Make a sacrifice. Everything else is, if God wanted, and they had to, hold on. Our God and the Father of our Son owns all the gold in the world and gave us none of it? To go to the temple? Has he forgotten us? Has he neglected us? Does he not care about us? I mean, Joseph and Mary could think these same things too. What would you think? You have the God of the universe who owns it all, and you have not any of it in your hand. And and God says, don't sweat any of that. Just go do the sacrifice. I'm not concerned about gold. I'm not concerned about silver. I'll give you everything you need. They don't know that a year or two years later they're going to be given some gold and silver. And you don't know what God will do down the road, but even if you do, I can guarantee you what Joseph and Mary wouldn't do, they wouldn't start dressing Jesus in Gianni Versace clothing. Well, we've hit the jackpot. Let's start shopping for really expensive clothes for Jesus. Jesus himself would cite that his relative, John the Baptist, was never wearing luxurious clothing. Why? Because he said, you don't want to hear from a man who cares that much about all the things in the world? How little God placed value on earthly possessions and wealth that he would place his son instead, of a st- instead in a stable, a borrowed manger, no earthly possessions for his parents, barely able to afford these things. And there they would go, and they would offer the third of these areas of consecration and sanctification. The third pertained, and the second, uh, the third uh, in total, but the second one pertaining directly to Jesus, and they would consecrate Jesus himself. This was according to Exodus 13, verse 2, if you're taking notes. Exodus 13, 2 says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast. It is mine. This is also where we get the principle of first fruits. The first fruits of everything you make belong to God. The first fruits of everything you bring in belongs to God. Really, it all belongs to God. But He says, as a marker of your commitment to Me, always dedicate, always consecrate your first fruits. That's why we talk about things like tithes and offerings. But they would bring the firstborn and dedicate them at the tabernacle. In the wilderness, it was the tabernacle. And then later, it would be the temple in the promised land. And Joseph and Mary, both faithful to follow and obey the word of God, do exactly what the law says in verse 23, as it is written. You see it actually cites Exodus thirteen two. there. As is written, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Mary and Joseph, the circumcision, check. Mary's purification, check. Come and dedicate Jesus as the firstborn at the temple. Check. All three areas of consecration done exactly the way the Lord has asked, and they're both faithful to obey and follow the Word of God, not complaining that they didn't have much money. Not We see none of that, just simple obedience to the Word of God. How about you? Do you live your life in simple obedience to the Word of God? Well, God says to do this in the Word, but we can't afford it. Or God says to do this in the Word, but I don't have time. Or God says to do this in the Word, but I don't want to pray. Or God says to do this, I, I, I don't want to witness, I don't want to do these things. But are we being faithful to just do the things that God's told us to do? Not the ceremonial aspects of the law. The new, under the new covenant, circumcision is not required. Going to the temple is not required. There's not even a temple to go to physically, but we do have a temple, him Jesus himself, the throne room of God. But are we, are we faithful to the commands of God, faithful to the commands of Jesus Christ, faithful to the commands of righteousness and purity? He still wants it to be righteous and pure, doesn't he, and holy and set apart in this world? Faithful to the commitment of prayer, faithful to the word of God and to the gospel, Faithful and loving and serving God first and foremost, and loving and serving others just after it. Two great commandments. Consecration. F.B. Meyer said, Consecration is not the act of our feelings, but the act of our will. Did you catch that? F.B. Meyer lived in the 1800s. Consecration is not the act of our feelings, but the act of our will. It sure isn't our feelings, because our feelings will oftentimes not feel like doing certain things. Right? Not feel like things. Your feelings will lie to you. The Word of God will always be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It will never mislead you. It will never guide you into Wasting time, it'll always guide you into redeeming time. It'll never guide you into things that will be unproductive, but it'll always guide you into things that will be profitable, not unfavorable, but favorable. The Word of God is faithful if we follow it. Let's look at what takes place next here, the consolation. Starting in verse 25, we see there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Once again, we see one of the servants of God, we saw it with Zacharias, we saw it with Mary, we saw it with Elizabeth. The Holy Spirit is what? Upon him. The Holy Spirit is upon him. Why is the Holy Spirit upon him? Well, because he's just and devout. The Holy Spirit's not upon people who are in living in opposition to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is upon people who are living in obedience and harmony with the Lord. The Holy Spirit is upon Him, because not because He's perfect, but because He's devout. He's devoted. When we hear the word devout, it means someone devoted. Would people look at your life and say, that's a person devoted to Jesus Christ? Or would they say, I don't know. They say they go to church, but beyond that, they're no different than me. Or would they say, no, they're devoted to the Lord. I didn't say holier than thou. I didn't say self-righteous. I didn't say really stick out their chest. I'm really spiritual. No, no, the people would just say they are devoted to the Lord. When people looked at Simeon, whatever you thought of Simeon, there was pretty strong agreement that people would look and say, he's devoted to God. There's no question about it. He's devoted. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. This servant, the name Simeon, is the Hebrew name for Shimon. Some of you might have heard that word. I know when we lived in South Florida, uh, pretty large Jewish population in South Florida. When I was going to college in Miami, um, you know, we had uh, one of the, uh, when I was in college, I was a, my wife and I worked at a youth camp, and one of our counselors, his name was Shimon. His parents used to make us um, hummus. He made us hummus, really good stuff, fresh fresh hummus, uh, but his name was Shimon, and then later as I studied the Word of God, I realized that that is actually Simeon, same word, Simeon is kind of the Greek and, and all the way over uh, to the English understanding, but Shimon was the name directly linked to the verb Shama, which means to hear or to listen, to obey. The name also means obedient. It means listening. It means he who hears or a man of listening. Who that loves the Lord doesn't want that to be our testimony? That we would be, Jesus oftentimes would say, Hear, wouldn't he? Listen. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say, you would see in the scriptures. Someone who hears. The voice of the Lord. But not just hears the word of the Lord. Don't be hearers only, but also doers of the word. And he is. He's not just a hearer, but he's just and devout. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was waiting. He was watching. Waiting and watching for the Lord. listening, Listening to the word listening to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, A.W. Tozer said, the man who would truly know God must give time to him. The man who would truly know God must give time to him. If you give God five minutes of your day out of 24 hours, you're not going to hear a lot. True? If you give him all the day, as Paul said, praying without ceasing... You're going to hear him a lot. They asked George Mueller, George, how often do you pray? He said, constantly. I pray all day long, constantly looking into the word, constantly praying, constantly hearing from the Lord But the man who would truly know God must give him time. And Simeon gave the Lord time, time in his presence, but also waiting patiently for the time of the Lord to reveal. And the Holy Spirit told him an amazing thing. In his lifetime, remember there had been 400 years of silence, but the Holy Spirit told Simeon, Simeon, I know you're getting old, but guess what? You will not die until you see the Messiah. Wow. 400 years of silence. There hadn't been one of God's prophets. There hadn't been a Malachi or a Micah or an Isaiah until... The one that would come in the spirit of Elijah would be who? John the Baptist. The prophet that picks up from the other prophets is John the Baptist. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Behold, making straight way the Lord. But but the Lord told Simeon, "Not, not the prophet. The prophet will prepare the way. You'll actually meet the Messiah himself before you go to heaven which, of course, you're going to see him as soon as you die in heaven as well. But you'll see him. He would no doubt know the Scriptures. He would know Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Not that he knew exactly what age Jesus would be when he'd see him, but he had been told by the Holy Spirit, You will see the Messiah. And it had been revealed to him. And he knew instantaneously, so when he came by the Spirit, the Spirit led him that day to the temple. Verse 27, the Spirit, by the Spirit, led him to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to law, Simeon knew. You know, there's other parents there with their children. All the faithful Israelites would dedicate their their children as well. Any other firstborn, there are other... Joseph and Mary were by no means the only parent, but Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, knew his eyes looking through the crowd, and the Holy Spirit says, there he is. That's the Messiah right there. Lord, they have two turtle doves. They're poor as church mice. They've got nothing. But he knew the Lord had revealed to him that is the Messiah. And he comes in verse 28 and he takes him up in his arms. And his parents, they are also prepared by the Holy Spirit to allow him to take the child from them. I'm sure most of you moms, if you're walking in some place and some elderly man you've never met before comes up and says, mind if I take your son for just a sec? I don't think so. He's barely six weeks old. Remember, eight days plus 33, He'd catch a cold from you or something. But they knew that the whole thing was ordained by the Lord, that the Lord had prepared Simeon, the Lord had prepared Joseph and Mary's heart, and Jesus was prepared there that Simeon would take him in his arms. We're not told a lot about him. He doesn't appear to be uh, anyone of authority here. He just appears to be a man that follows the Lord. But he almost acts like a high priest here because it's him that gives the blessing. And he took him in his arm and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon is the servant here. But the salvation, he's looking literally at Emmanuel. God with us. He's looking directly at the salvation. Jesus is the salvation. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation and I'm holding it tangibly, physically. I've heard of your salvation in the prophets. I've heard of your salvation in the law. I've heard that salvation is coming. I've heard that the Messiah was coming and now I've seen it with my own just like the shepherds did. Consolation. Consolation. The word consolation means comfort, the comfort of Israel. I'm holding the comfort of Israel. I'm holding the salvation. And his name will be called Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, for he shall save his people from their sins. Simeon knows that he's a sinner, but he knows that the people around him are sinners and that this child would be the atonement for their sin. He had been waiting for this. My eyes have seen. Now I can depart in peace. You've been waiting. And he sees this salvation. Look at the different names of Jesus that are, they they should, uh, the more you read this, they'll lift off the page. I've underlined a few of them in my Bible. First one is in verse 25. Consolation of Israel. That's a name for Christ. He is the consolation of Israel. That is a name one of his many names. He wears many names, the name above all names, Yeshua, but all these names, he's the consolation of Israel. Verse 26, he's the Lord's Christ. We know that Christ is synonymous with Messiah. Messiah means Christ, Christ means Messiah, and both mean the anointed one. Remember, the anointed were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Jesus was all three. He is the Lord's Christ. He is the anointed That's in verse 26. Then we see his precious name Yeshua in verse 27, brought the child Jesus. The name above every name is in verse 27. Then in verse 29, a name that John gives uh, to the Lord Jesus, or not gives him, but the Holy Spirit uh, gives John to give, and that is your word. One of Jesus' names at the beginning was the word. Verse 29, that's another name for Jesus, your word. How about verse 30, your salvation, Another name for Jesus is salvation. Verse 32, a light, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John chapter 1. How about Revelation? We think of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, this is one of Jesus' names. The Revelation to the Gentiles. How about verse 32 at the last, which is what I titled today's message, the glory of your people Israel, another one of Jesus' names. All these give us the facets of who Jesus is. And lastly, Simeon gives this prophecy, which is very bittersweet, especially if you're Mary and Joseph, although Mary herself would would see it with her own eyes. Joseph, we believe, had already gone to be with the Lord Verse 34 and 35. Then Simeon blessed them. He's about to give Jesus back to Mary. And he has these parting words that are very sobering. They're bittersweet. They're necessary for our salvation, but they're really tough for Mary to hear. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many. Think about the gravity of that statement. Do you realize that when it says in the Scriptures that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that Jesus is destined for the rise and fall of many, and in fact, every. Some will be raised to eternal life. Some will be condemned to everlasting damnation and darkness. Jesus is destined for the rise and fall of many. The name of Jesus is the plumb line to which every single person will be divided, sheep and goats. The rise of many, the fall of many. Well, I didn't really really make a decision about Jesus. I didn't really know what to think. Then you made a decision. True? I wasn't really against him. I wasn't really for him. He says you're either for me or against me. Well, I I really have nothing against him. I think he was a good teacher. Did you follow him? Well, no. Rise and fall of many. Many people would hear the testimony of Jesus, but not all would accept. He would be destined for the rise and fall. He would speak and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John would believe it. Peter would believe it. Philip would believe it. Many would believe it. Mary Magdalene would believe it. Lazarus would believe it. Caiaphas wouldn't believe it. Caiaphas would say, he would go on to say, it's expedient for all of us as Jews to kill this man that Israel will not endure any type of difficulty with the Roman government. So let's kill the Son of God. That's what Caiaphas would come up with the rise and fall of many. And for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary, it's going to be difficult, but you're going to feel like someone rammed a sword into your soul. You know, prophets, Simeon's given a prophet ministry here, prophets have to deliver messages that even they don't want to deliver. I don't think Simeon enjoyed sharing this last bit. He much more enjoyed verses 29 through 32. A light, I've seen your salvation, but the Lord says, Simeon, there's one more thing. I need you to pre-prepare Mary because 33 years from now, she'll treasure that I already started to prepare her for what's to come. When the wise men come, she'll get another preparation with the myrrh. I need to prepare her. Get her ready for the fact that he's destined, destined for the cross, which will be the rise of many, will someday be raised in the resurrection, and the fall of many, who will someday fall into hell and into perdition Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul. It's going to be difficult. But look what it says, that the thoughts and hearts of many may be revealed. You know, when we talk about the principle of duality in Scripture, that one verse means multiple things at the same time, you can't help but see that this one verse says so much about the witness of Christ. The sword. Certainly, Mary's own personal grief with the crucifixion. As she would see her own son pierced, his feet pierced, his hands pierced, and ultimately a Roman spear, which at the end was a sword, into his own side. But also that Jesus himself would say in Matthew ten thirty five, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That he would bring a sword of division to say, Everyone has to come to the valley of decision. Everyone. And the sword of the word of God pierces through the hearts and says, what say you? Say, I believe and will follow Jesus or thanks but no thanks. Remember the invite to the wedding? Invite everybody. And a lot of people were invited and some said, I I got fields to plow. I got buildings to build i got stocks to count. I'd really love to come. God says, then go invite everybody else. Go invite everyone on the highways, the byways, the hedges. Invite everybody else, and when they come, the others will be cast into outer darkness. That he would bring a sword. Jesus said, I came to bring this sword, which would be a division, to make a decision which way Will you go? Will you follow? Will you obey? Will you hear the word of the Lord? Isaiah, uh, or Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here it says, the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. No doubt the writer of Hebrews would have been aware of Simeon's prophecy. That the word of God was not only the written word of God, but Jesus himself would be the one that would pierce hearts and bring conviction even to the depths of soul. No one will ever be able to stand before Jesus and say, I would have believed in you, but you didn't give me enough evidence. And the Lord will say, that lie works on earth, but not in the presence of a holy God. No one, Paul would write in Romans 1, that no man... All men will be without excuse and that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, much more so the love of Christ who stretched out his arms and died, that we would be saved. And then, as I mentioned, Jesus himself experiencing the sword, John nineteen thirty-four. but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. This single statement telling us that Jesus himself brings the sword of conviction, that the word brings conviction, that the sword would pierce himself and Mary herself, would have to take solace, and these things must be. As Jesus said himself in the garden, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Because there's not another way, is there? He had to send his son, but his son couldn't stay. We love the Christmas, we love the Christmas celebration, but we know it points to the Easter time, doesn't it? It points to Calvary, it points to the crucifixion. Last section we'll look at this morning, the continuation. The continuation, now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, the Of the tribe of Asher, she was of great age and lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. This woman was a widow of 84 years, did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. The continuation. This name, Anna, the Hebrew meaning. The Hebrew meaning of Anna is gracious or grace or favored one. It's a variation of the name Hannah. As a matter of fact, if you read it in the Hebrew Bible, Anna is written as Hannah. Most likely she was called Hannah to the people of her day. Anna is the Greek rendering for us, but Anna is a variation from Hannah. More than likely, she was called Hannah. It means "gracious or favored one," that God had given her grace. Um, Remember I mentioned that John the Baptist, later he would be a man that would eat what? Locust and honey. And I, I'm convinced that God gave him just great enjoyment that locusts and honey were just fine for him. That you couldn't, you couldn't, really, you couldn't really make John the Baptist jealous pulling up on a Maserati. Because it, it offered no allure to him. He would look at it and say, It's a hunk of metal. We just ate a 12 course meal. I just had locusts and they were delicious. Poor John. John says, Poor you. God makes my locusts taste like manna from heaven, whereas you just ate what you had and you have tums all night. (laughs) My stomach's doing great. Poor Anna. A widow, all these years, but God, her name means gracious or favored one. Anna would say, No, 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 you don't. I'm happier like this than you are with everything. That doesn't make sense, Hannah, Hannah, Anna. Anna, Anna. <laughs> you can't be happy like this. There's no way you can be happy like this. It's impossible. You sit at the temple all day. How boring is that? Oh. But God comes down out of heaven to me. I can't explain it. I taste things differently than you do. Not because I'm better, but just the longer I've stayed in his presence, I just become enraptured with him. I believe she was given, again, I have no way of knowing this, we'll get to heaven, but I mean, it appears to me that maybe she was even given the gift of singleness after this. Now once you're given the gift, remember, if something doesn't appeal to you, it just doesn't appeal to you anymore. If there's some hobby, let's say some of you guys like to hunt. Man, I love getting up at 5 in the morning. It's 22 degrees, and it's, I'm out there, you know, up there in the tree. It is so fun. You ask another guy, you can try and paint the picture. He's not buying it. He's not appealed by it. He doesn't think, wow, I'm so jealous of you that you got to be in a duck blind all day or do this other thing. It doesn't appeal to him. The same way, once God gives you a gift, and he really gives it to you, if it's genuine John the Baptist or Simeon or Anna, you can't be pulled in every direction because you're anchored by God giving you satisfaction where you're at. That's why Mick Jagger sang he couldn't get any satisfaction. He's traveled every continent looking for it and looking older by the year, too. Although he still thinks he sings like he's young. But anyway and can't seem to find it, whereas Anna found it and says, I know this sounds weird, but I couldn't be happier with my relationship with the Lord, fasting and praying all the time. It says she was a prophetess. What does that mean? Well, she wasn't uh, John the Baptist Jr. or senior, because she'd be older. Prophetess means that she was one who continually spoke the Word of God. She was the kind of person that whenever you met her, she would say something like this You know, the Word of God says. And some of the younger women are like, You always say that. What else am I going to tell you? Do you want me to tell you what the Quran says, which isn't going to be written for many, many years later? What the Word of God says. She was constantly quoting the Word of God. Speaking the Word of God. Do people know you as someone who lives and breathes and speaks the Word of God? She loved to proclaim it. She loved to tell others what the Word of God said. She reminded people often of God's faithfulness. What was her service? Her service was fasting and prayer. And for whatever reason, God gave her incredible favor to not only stay in that station... But she was greatly enriched and satisfied in it, favored, given grace. She reminds me of the older women uh, that are referenced in Titus 2, 3, the older women likewise, that they would be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to wine, but teachers of good things. She was the teacher of good things. Younger women that didn't have, again, I'm not saying that she had the gift of singleness, but I believe that. If you look at the length of years she lived as a widow, I believe God gave her something along those lines, but she still would have been an encourager to other people who had been given a different life. Maybe Mary herself was not given the gift of singleness. Jesus would go on to have other brothers and sisters, and Mary would be encouraged by Anna, just as Mary was encouraged by Elizabeth. If you're an older woman in the faith, God has much to do with you and use you to speak truth in the lies of others. What is her What is her response to seeing Jesus? She did her lived her life of fasting and prayer. Coming in at that moment, she instantly gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all who looked for redemption. Spoke to everybody about Him. Spoke to everybody. Like Simeon, she was waiting for the Lord, waiting on the Lord. Romans thirteen eleven says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it's high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It is nearer than we first believed. I believed on the Lord in 1995, and lo and behold, it is 2013, soon to be 2014. I'm 19 years closer to the return of Jesus. And so are you if you were there in 1995. Jesus said in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Do you believe that? Simeon did. Anna did. Joseph and Mary did. They were the believers. That's why we call ourselves believers. They believed The word of God they believed what the word said they believed with the Holy Spirit and they lived accordingly as we come to a close and I'll close with this I look at these I look at Mary I look at Joseph I look at Simeon I look at Anna and this is a, a list I put down that I think really represents their lives in totality each of them lived with purpose and they would purpose to obey the Lord. Each of them lived with patience. Whether it was being a widow, whether it was waiting on when the Lord would come, whether it was patience and I'm pregnant and no one really knows that I'm really already married to Joseph. And how can this be? Perseverance. Perseverance. Prayer. Fasting's in prayer. Not even just prayer. Fasting's in prayer. Praise. People of praise. Mary was that. We saw that in Luke chapter 1. Simeon. And then proclamation. Telling other people. Telling other people about the Lord. Telling other people about the goodness of God. Telling other people about His grace. Is that, is that you and I? Would that characterize our lives? God wants us to worship at the feet of, of the glory of Israel, that these things would be manifest in our lives. Amen?